Hi there, Layman's Historian podcast fans. In listening to William's exceptional show, among the many compelling reasons that keeps on bringing me back for more are all the fascinating military leaders from history that shook the very grounds in which they lived, fought, and died. And if you feel the same, maybe you have an appetite to learn about others. I'm Mark Pimenta, the host of the Warlords of History podcast, a show focused on intriguing warriors and leaders, ancient and medieval, who were titans during their respective ages, where, over several episodes, we'll review each of their lifetimes and actions, but also take this further by exploring the surrounding environmental, social, and political landscape, their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did, how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. If any of this interests you, join me as we dive into each of their lifetimes, their worlds, in the Warlords of History podcast. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts or via warlordsofhistory.com. Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 51, Carthago de Linda Est. Last time, we covered the aftermath of the Second Punic War, including the deaths of Scipio and Hannibal. Today, we examine the tumultuous period of peace that will soon give way to the Third and Final Punic War. Back in Carthage, Hannibal's reforms far outlived the old general's death. Freed of the expense of empire, the phoenix-like economy of Carthage roared back from the bankruptcy of the prior years. Surpluses led to massive building expansions in the city and port, and archaeological evidence seems to indicate that, all things considered, Carthage, post-Hannibal, was firmly on the road to recovery. Yet even though Carthage was enjoying something of an economic renaissance, her neighbors were not far behind. To be more precise, the newly united Numidian kingdom under Carthage's former ally turned enemy, Massinissa, was centralizing at an alarming rate. As we have seen throughout this story, the Numidians had always played an outsized role in North African affairs, whether as mercenaries in the Carthaginian army or as geopolitical players in their own right. For example, even though other peoples, such as the Ligurians, served in larger numbers in the Carthaginian armies, they are referenced far less often than the numerically smaller contingents of Numidians, demonstrating the importance ancient authors attach to the latter's military effectiveness. Similarly, the high-ranking officials dispatched to negotiate with Numidian kings included men of consular and suffete rank, showing that, far from being a roving band of barbarians, the Numidians were a major force in the wider Mediterranean world. The move to settle and quote-unquote civilize accelerated rapidly under Massinissa. Archaeological finds at Numidian cities such as Doga, ancient Thugga, Serta, Sabratha, and Siga reveal an incredibly rich and diverse culture during Massinissa's reign. 
elaborate funeral monuments in the form of multi-storied towers capped by a pyramid-like roof show a remarkable degree of assimilation and cross-pollination between Punic and Numidian cultures. Although the architecture contains Punic elements and symbols, such as those commonly associated with Baal and Tanit, the names of the deceased, as well as the craftsmen who built the monument, are often without exception Numidian. Dual inscriptions in both Punic and Numidian, as well as Numidian names transcribed in Punic letters, testify to a widespread bilingual culture. Indeed, when Massinissa began striking coins, he embossed them with Punic words and Hellenistic motifs, such as the laurel crown, proclaiming his civilized credentials to the world. Numidian coins were not just for regal propaganda, though. Many have been found in places as far afield as the Balkans and Rhodes, testifying to a thriving international trade. Extensive lists of valuable Numidian grave goods, black glazed pottery, painted ostrich eggs, glass vessels, and jewelry, from places as far afield as Italy and Greece, prove that, far from being a nomadic backwater, Numidia was well integrated into the surrounding markets. Given Numidia's rising prominence as a military and economic power, it is no wonder that Massinissa is named by ancient authors alongside other great monarchs of the Hellenistic East, Eumenes of Pergamon, Antiochus III of the Seleucids, and Ptolemy of Egypt, as an equal. Despite their deep cultural, religious, and military ties, the Carthaginians likely viewed Numidia's growing prosperity with a wary eye. Over the centuries, a strong Carthage had been able to successfully play the Numidian kings and chieftains against one another, supporting some, opposing others, and generally keeping the desert herdsmen dispersed and divided. The dramatic conclusion of the Second Punic War, complete with the defeat of Massinissa's chief rival Syphax, consolidated the reins of power solely into the victor's hands. In the years which followed Zama, Massinissa would add to his kingdom through his own convenient interpretation of a vague clause in the peace treaty of 201 BC. This clause stated that the Carthaginians were to restore all the land formerly owned by Massinissa or his ancestors. Armed with this legal loophole, Massinissa began steadily encroaching on Carthaginian holdings, covertly at first, but more brazenly as each success reinforced his belief that Carthage was in decline. The fact that Carthage could neither field an army nor declare war without Rome's permission further hampered her efforts at resisting Numidian incursions, and repeated delegations to the Roman Senate to protest proved futile as the Romans consistently ruled in favor of their ally, stripping valuable land from Carthage, such as the port cities known as the Emporia. Eventually, Massinissa felt confident enough to level the outrageous claim that the treaty restricted the Carthaginians solely to the original territory around the Bursa, which had been marked out by Dido's oxides. Massinissa's bold assaults, Rome's alternating apathy or downright encouragement, and Carthage's own impotence would soon render this situation untenable. Like Numidia, Rome at the time of Hannibal's death was far different than the Rome at the start of his career. Then she had been a regional power in Italy and Sicily, a potent force in Italian politics doubtless, but still limited in scope and projection. 
with the utter defeat of her rival Carthage, Rome now exploded across the Mediterranean. A quick succession of wars with the Diadochian East added numerous territories and client states to Rome's roster. A mere 35 years after Hannibal's death, Macedon would be destroyed at the conclusion of the Fourth Macedonian War. While Seleucid power was severely curbed following their decisive defeat at Magnesia. In the West, the Romans, conscious of the fact that Spain had been the main source of Barcid power, left legions in Iberia, converting former Carthaginian holdings into two new provinces administered by Roman magistrates. Low-level conflict would continue for centuries as Roman garrisons clashed with the seasonal tribal warfare and raiding. Periodically, the peninsula would erupt with major conflicts such as the Numantine Wars with the Celtiberians in the latter half of the 2nd century BC. As we shall see, the Spanish Wars in particular greatly exacerbated internal frictions within the Roman government, but despite this, the continued presence of the legionaries year after year drove home the essential point. Rome was here to stay. Fortunately for Rome, her armies of the early 200s BC, forged in the fires of the Hannibalic Wars, proved more than equal to the task of conquest. The men of this period had served unusually long periods of service during the 17-year struggle with Hannibal, and the hard-won experience served her legionaries in good stead when facing a wide spectrum of foes ranging from the professional armies of the successors to the wild tribesmen of Hispania. We even read of the veterans of Cannae still serving well into the 190s BC, over 20 years after that great defeat. This rapid expansion and the corresponding wealth and power it provided forms the backdrop to the shifting attitudes at Rome during this time. Scarred by the existential threat Hannibal had posed and the past memories of Gallic invasions, the Romans of this period viewed any contemporary power with particular suspicion if not outright hostility. It has been said, not without a tinge of irony, that Rome, quote, conquered the world in self-defense, end quote. As ludicrous as this sounds to a modern ear, the Romans themselves seem to have taken it very seriously, launching several preemptive strikes to destabilize or crush rivals before the imagined invasion of Italy could take place. The wars with Macedon were a key example of this policy. Remembering Philip V's formal alliance with Hannibal, Rome consistently viewed Alexander's old homeland as a material threat long after Macedon's actual military capabilities had ceased to pose any real danger. Macedon's fate provided a gloomy omen for other historic Roman enemies, such as Carthage. By the 150s BC, though, most of the veterans who had handed Rome spectacular victories at Cynocephali and Magnesia had aged out of the Roman military system. The younger generations, having grown up with the glories of empire but none of its costs, were marked by an increasing arrogance and carelessness regarding military matters, leading to a series of serious reverses in Spain against the Lusitanians and specifically against Viriathus a Lusitanian warlord who made a name for himself in resisting Roman expansion. Heavy Roman losses against the Celtiberians culminated in a particularly humiliating incident when, as the levy was being called to send reinforcements to Spain in 151 BC, too few men volunteered to fill the ranks. 
This crisis was only resolved when Publius Cornelius Scipio Aemilianus, son of Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonius, and grandson by adoption of Scipio Africanus, publicly volunteered to serve as military tribune, inspiring enough men by his example to join the army. This incident, as well as other defeats and minor crises, produce a growing feeling of insecurity in Rome, combined with their natural paranoia and arrogance in foreign policy. The Romans took on an increasingly interventionist attitude in Mediterranean affairs. The influx of wealth and riches from conquest only served to incite further aggressive expansion, sending her on a series of wars on relatively weak pretexts. The Macedonian campaign had highlighted this new Roman realpolitik. When Rome ignored the Macedonian king Perseus's good-faith attempts to avoid the war, even going so far as to detain the king's diplomats in Rome to give the legionaries more time to assemble. On another occasion, the Senate dispatched an elderly senator named Papilius to dissuade the Seleucid king Antiochus IV from waging war against the Ptolemies of Egypt. When Antiochus heard Rome's request, he asked for time to consult his advisors, but the Roman senator instead drew a circle around the king with his stick demanding that he deliver his answer before leaving it. Stunned by the Romans' arrogance, Antiochus nonetheless agreed to withdraw. This offensive treatment of a ruler of one of the greatest of the Diadochi kingdoms by a diplomatic envoy once again reveals how Rome viewed herself in relation to her neighbors. Diodorus Siculus describes the Roman change of attitude in a famous passage. Quote, in more recent times, the Romans, when they went in pursuit of world empire, brought it into being by valor of arms, then extended its influence far and wide by the kindest possible treatment of the conquered. But once they held sway over virtually the whole inhabited world, they confirmed their power by the wielding of terror and by the destruction of their most eminent cities. End quote. Although all civilizations at one time or another used violence to gain their ends, Rome had a relatively unique outlook on war and conquest, fighting wars to a definitive endpoint rather than a negotiated peace treaty, and treating the vanquished as if they were to be perpetual vassals of the Roman state rather than as sovereign powers who happened to be on the losing side of an armed conflict. As a vanquished enemy, Carthage in particular was to be Rome's servant indefinitely. No Roman of this era epitomized this view more than Marcus Porcius Cato, more commonly known as Cato the Elder. We have met Cato in the previous episode as the inveterate foe of the Scipios, but now we can introduce this ornery old Roman properly. As one writer, according to Plutarch, describes him, quote, Porcius Cato, who snarls at all and every place, with his gray eyes and with his fiery face, even after death will scarce admitted be into the infernal realms by Hecate. End quote. Known for a punishingly severe lifestyle, Cato from his youth practiced a Spartan austerity. Working his farm with his own hands, eating the same food as his slaves, and squeezing every ounce of productivity out of everything and everyone within his control, Cato had an obsession with frugality and a hatred of luxury. According to Plutarch, he consistently boasted of the cheapness of his garments and food, drinking water as opposed to wine, 
and buying only hearty slaves who could work his lands as opposed to more fashionable, good-looking slaves. When the bodies of these men had given out due to old age, Cato proceeded to sell them for next to nothing, determined that no useless mouths should be fed in his house, a severity that even Plutarch censures in his parallel lives. Besides his notorious thrift, or avarice, depending on who you ask, Cato was famous as an orator in the courts and senate. A quote-unquote new man to Roman society, Cato had early on attached himself to the faction of Fabius Maximus the Delayer, and he resolutely supported the old dictator's arguments against the rising Scipio Africanus. Plutarch describes the old man's way of speaking as, quote, courteous and yet forcible, pleasant yet overwhelming, facetious yet austere, sententious and yet vehement, like Socrates in the description of Plato, who seemed outwardly to those about him to be but a simple, talkative, blunt fellow, while at the bottom he was full of such gravity and matter as would even move tears and touch the very hearts of his hearers. End quote. His powerful rhetorical skills and caustic biting wit won him great influence in the Senate, to the point that, as we have seen, he successfully confronted and overthrew even the great Africanus himself. Similar to Massinissa, who bridged the gap for Numidia between the Second and Third Punic Wars, Cato was a product of earlier days. Aged just 17 when he first took up arms against Hannibal, his lengthy military career had brought him to many of the major battles of the Second Punic War, including Tarentum, the Mataris, and the African Campaign. His subsequent meteoric rise up the Cursus Honorum saw him elected to the consulship in which he reduced southern Iberia in record time, boasted that, quote, he took more cities than he stayed days in Spain, end quote. For this campaign, the Senate awarded him a triumph, and the years following this showed him going from strength to strength. While other members of his generation retired or faded from public life, Cato still played an active and influential role in the Senate even though he was in his 70s by the 150s BC. Given his track record, as well as his furious rancor against encroaching luxury and Hellenism from the East, it is unsurprising that, of all the Roman warhawks, Cato waged the most determined and relentless campaign against the resurgent Carthage. After another one of Massinissa's flagrant incursions into Carthaginian territory, Cato had been sent to Carthage to mediate the dispute. According to Plutarch, quote, finding Carthage not as the Romans thought, low and in an ill condition, but well manned, full of riches and all sorts of arms and ammunition, and perceiving the Carthaginians carry it high, Cato conceived that it was not a time for the Romans to adjust affairs between the Carthaginians and Massinissa, but rather that the Romans themselves would fall into danger unless they should find means to check this rapid new growth of Rome's ancient irreconcilable enemy. End quote. Swiftly returning to Rome, he immediately informed the Senate of all that he had seen, and, like a practiced actor, he shook the folds of his toga and let some plump African figs fall to the ground. As the throng of senators admired their size and beauty, Cato told the onlookers that they had come from Carthage, a mere three-day sail away. Following this spectacle, Cato would end every speech, regardless of the subject matter, 
with the now infamous words, Carthago de Linda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. Cato's words quickly found a willing audience. The age-old enmity and prejudices against the Carthaginians ran deep, especially in the generations following the Second Punic War, with popular Roman stage plays such as the Poenilus, depicting the typical Carthaginian as an avaricious, duplicitous, and inveterate trickster. With Carthage's rapid resurgence came the fear that, true to their perceived nature, the Carthaginians would revert to their quote-unquote warmongering ways. The material wealth and prosperity of the capital and her farmlands, as well as the lack of any real military resistance, also provided a strong incentive. If the Carthaginians could not keep their riches, why shouldn't the Romans take them? So ran the brutal logic. To be fair, some Romans, chiefly those led by Scipio Nasia, son-in-law of Scipio Africanus, argued against declaring war against Carthage, although not from any love for the Punic state. Besides his personal reasons for opposing Cato, Scipio believed that the destruction of Carthage would bring disaster on Rome, and he matched Cato's fury by ending his own speeches with the phrase, quote, Carthage should be preserved, end quote. Diodorus Siculus summarized Scipio's argument as follows, quote, Rome's strength should be judged, not by the weakness of others, but by showing herself greater than the great. Furthermore, as long as Carthage survived, the fear that she generated forced the Romans to live together in harmony and to rule their subjects equitably and with credit to themselves. But once the rival city was destroyed, it was only too evident that there would be civil war at home and that hatred for the governing power would spring up among the allies because of the rapacity and lawlessness to which the Roman magistrates would subject them. End quote. Although tinged with hindsight, Diodorus, after all, wrote during the first century BC, when warlords such as Sulla, Marius, Pompey, and Julius Caesar were waging war across the empire, Scipio's words were cited by later chroniclers as prophetic, whether or not he actually said them. Had she lived, they argue, Carthage would have provided an external threat which would have slowed or even reversed the decline in Roman virtue, while she would always be too weak to pose any real danger. Whatever this argument's merits, few in Rome in the 150s BC cared to hear it. Although his words may have swayed an already willing populace, Cato did not provoke the Senate to declare war immediately. For the Romans, ever sensitive to the accusation of acting unjustly, hesitated at revealing the naked aggression which lurked just beneath the surface. Instead, they waited for an excuse which would allow them to wage a quote-unquote just war against Carthage. It was not long before the Numidians provided just what the Senate required. Around 152 to 151 BC, the Carthaginians, despairing of relief from Numidian depredations, elected a more hard-line government which expelled the politicians who had supported Massinissa over the years. When the Numidian king's sons arrived at Carthage to protest on the exile's behalf, they were refused admittance to the city and later attacked by a mob led by Hamilcar the Samnite. Following this incident, Massinissa, by now 88 years old, renewed his assaults in 150 BC, going so far as to lay siege to the city of Oriscopa. 
This was the last straw for Carthage. For the first time in 50 years, the Carthaginians determined to fight a war without Rome's approval. Raising an army of 25,000 foot and 400 horse, the citizens placed a general named Hasdrubal in overall command. Advancing on Massinissa, Hasdrubal received an unexpected reinforcement when two Numidian chieftains deserted after bickering with the king's sons. Their desertion added 6,000 light cavalry to the ranks, and in the skirmishing that followed, the Carthaginians gained some minor successes. The cunning old king, however, slowly withdrew into his own territory, luring the Carthaginians into rugged desert terrain far from food and water. At some point, a day-long battle ensued where neither side gained an advantage. Coincidentally, the battle was observed by Scipio Aemilianus, who had been dispatched to the Numidian king to negotiate for elephants for the Spanish campaign. When Scipio's subsequent mediation talks fell through, Hasdrubal pitched camp in the hills and waited. In a startling display of just how far the Numidian army had come, Massinissa's men formed a ditch and rampart to completely surround the Carthaginians, effectively besieging their camp using Roman-style tactics. If Hasdrubal had hoped to wait the Numidians out, tribal armies were notorious for leaving the field once their supplies ran out, he was sorely disappointed. Massinissa's army was no roving warband, and the Numidian king had clearly developed some form of logistic support to maintain his men in the field for so long. After consuming their horses for meat and chopping up their shields for firewood, the Carthaginians at last admitted defeat. Hasdrubal negotiated a ceasefire with Massinissa, promising a heavy war indemnity as well as the restoration of the exiled politicians. When his army marched out of camp, though, they were ambushed by Massinissa's son. Many Carthaginians lost their lives in the ensuing massacre, but Hasdrubal and his officers escaped. The war itself had been disastrous for Carthage, but its consequences would be fatal. A war in Africa, in flagrant violation of the peace treaty of 201 BC, proved to be just what the Roman Senate had been waiting for. Orders went out to muster new legions, while the Carthaginian delegation sent to explain the debacle received the cryptic reply that Carthage must, quote, satisfy the Roman people, end quote. In 149 BC, the Senate approved the declaration of war. To make matters worse, the ancient Phoenician colony of Utica defected to the Romans, providing them an ideal staging ground for the planned invasion of Africa. When a Carthaginian delegation arrived in Lilibaeum, where the consuls Manius Manilius and Lucius Marcius Censorinus were massing an army of 80,000 men and 4,000 horse, they were told that Carthage would have to give up 300 noble children as hostages if they wished to maintain their territory and the freedom to be governed by their own laws. The consuls carefully avoided discussing the fate of the city of Carthage itself, a technical, if rather duplicitous, justification for the continued preparations for war. Even after the hostages were handed over, the consuls still set sail for Utica. Another delegation was sent from Carthage, and upon arriving in Utica, they found the consuls seated in state with the legions paraded before them. Flanked by this awe-inducing spectacle, the envoys humbly asked how war could be avoided. 
Censorinus demanded that all Carthage's military equipment should be handed over to the Romans. Unwilling to resist, the Carthaginians once again agreed, supposedly delivering 200,000 suits of armor, 2,000 torsion engines, and a huge quantity of missiles. Only once this was done did the Romans make their final demand. As Appian reports it, Censorinus informed the Carthaginians that, quote, Your ready obedience up to this point in the matter of the hostages and the arms is worthy of all praise. In cases of necessity, we must not multiply words. Bear bravely the remaining commands of the Senate. Yield Carthage to us, and betake yourselves where you like within your own territory, at a distance of at least nine miles from the sea, for we are resolved to raise your city to the ground. End quote. Upon hearing this, the Carthaginians, quote, lifted their hands toward heaven with loud cries and called on the gods as avengers of violated faith. They heaped reproaches on the Romans, as if willing to die, or insane, or determined to provoke the Romans to sacrilegious violence to ambassadors. They flung themselves on the ground and beat it with their hands and heads. Some of them even tore their clothes and lacerated their flesh, as though they were absolutely bereft of their senses. After the first frenzy was passed, there was great silence and prostration as of men lying dead. End quote. Shocked by this display, the consuls remained silent until the Carthaginians had calmed enough to ask to be spared from so terrible a sacrifice. The city-state was the heart and soul of ancient peoples, and the death of a city, whether by actual destruction or by forcible relocation, nearly always meant the death of one civilization. As the historian Adrian Goldsworthy notes, quote, It was an appalling blow, for the city was the physical, spiritual, and emotional center of the state, severing the link of any new community with the sea, which had for so long been the source of Punic wealth, made it doubly so. End quote. When a Carthaginian spokesman told the Romans that they would be violating their own vaunted virtue by enforcing such a treacherous demand, Censorinus embarked on a long and disingenuous speech about how the Carthaginians would be better off as an inland people rather than a coastal one, reiterating arguments widely held in Roman and Greek circles. Although the following words are Cicero's, who wrote more than a century later, this quote summarizes the consul's argument succinctly. Quote, Maritime cities are prone to a certain moral degeneration, for they receive a mixture of strange languages and customs, and import foreign ways as well as foreign merchandise, so that none of their ancestral institutions could possibly remain unchanged. Many things, too, that cause ruin to states as being incitements to luxury are imported by sea. Geography, not race, explains the fraudulence and mendacity of the Carthaginians. With their minds set on profit, here was an open invitation to skillful deception. End quote. In a word, how much better the scheming Carthaginians would be when they were a reformed agricultural people removed from the temptation of international trade. Roughly expelled by the consul's lictors following this speech, the envoys returned to a nervous Carthage. When the Roman demands were made known in the Council of 104, the populace immediately rejected them. Politicians foolish enough to argue for concessions were lynched along with Italian traders in the city. 
and in a rare moment of unity, the entire city threw itself behind the war effort. Slaves were freed and then enrolled in the army. Hasdrubal was recalled from the exile imposed for his failure to defeat Massinissa, and women sacrificed their long hair to make rope for new war engines. Even the temples became workshops to turn out weapons round the clock, with a staggering a hundred shields, three hundred swords, a thousand missiles, and five hundred spears produced per day. Carthage's final determination to fight after the months of concessions and vacillations may have surprised the Romans. Even so, Carthage at bay would prove a thorn in Rome's side, and the siege which followed would be long, costly, and bloody. Next time, we cover the Third Punic War. Until then, take care and read more history.